Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and our guest today is Emma Clark, Chief Executive of Western Park Cancer Charity. You can find Emma on Twitter at Emily's underscore pine, that's E-M-I-L-Y-S underscore P-I-N-E. Listeners, you should find the audio quality has suddenly improved as at long last we are back in the studio here at Big Dog Studios in Neepsend, Sheffield. Welcome, Emma. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. Could we start by you telling us a little about Western Park Cancer Charity, its relationship with Western Park Hospital and its goals? Yeah, absolutely. So Western Park Cancer Charity has been in existence for, uh, well, we're coming up for 30 years next year. And we are the charity that supports Western Park Hospital or Western Park Cancer Centre, as it's now known. Um, The hospital is one of four specialist cancer centres or cancer hospitals in the country. So we're very privileged. We're very lucky here in Sheffield and in this uh, wider region, South Yorkshire region, to, to have it. I'm born and bred in Sheffield. Western Park's been part of my knowledge in this city for a very long time and I'm very proud to have it here. It serves the population of South Yorkshire and Bassett Law and we have around 9,000 people in that region diagnosed with cancer every year and around 54,000 people living with cancer. So a huge population, lots of people who are needing the support of the hospital, treatment at the hospital. But in terms of the charity, in those 30 years, it was it's done a huge range of things. So it's invested into the hospital, buying large pieces of kit, and uh, more recently, we, we spread our work between three key areas. So we invest in research, we support the advancement of treatment. So that could be investing into hospital wards or other aspects of sort of the facilities. And we also provide care. And what I mean by that is that we support people living with cancer with the non-clinical aspects of cancer. So how they live their lives, whether that is supporting them around finance, complementary therapies or just providing a listening ear. Um, So we do a huge range of things and our current strategy is to take those areas even further over the next three years. And what was the personal journey that you took up to becoming chief executive? So I was born in working class area of Sheffield, the manor. And and I, I've only come to realise coming over the last few years, actually, of how how formative that was in terms of who I am now and, and my leadership and, and the decisions that I make. And at the same time, I was going for my first job in the voluntary sector I I also went for a bar job on the same day, (laughs) so my life could have been turned out very differently to how it is now. But I, yeah, I secured a role in uh, in a charity. Uh, I was in London at that point in time, and I've never looked back. Really, it's it was just the role that I applied for was with a disabled children young people's charity, and I think the caring that I'd provided, you know, in my family, you know, I didn't realised that I, you know, was caring. I was just supporting my grandparents. But I think that influenced the kinds of things that I was looking for in my working life. 
I started work with disabled children and young people. I then moved further into sort of health, education, social care. So all of the aspects of kind of statutory services that touch the lives of those young people and then just kind of progressed. And, you know, I haven't been to university. I haven't taken a traditional route. And and I think it's really important for someone in my kind of role as a chief executive to be really open about that. And for lots of years, I wasn't. So I used to get asked the question of, uh, so what did you do on your gap year, Emma? And I avoided it like the plague because I didn't have a gap year. didn't even understand the concept of it. So I, I am very open nowadays about you know, where I came from and the route to where I, I am now. I know leadership's something that you think hard about. Can you tell us something about your leadership philosophy? Oh, well, I had a conversation with a colleague about this a couple of days ago, preparing for, for this conversation. I said, Chris has asked me what my leadership philosophy is. I thought, I've got no blooming idea what my leadership philosophy is. Um, and I think the reason I got kind of, I get so kind of overawed by those kinds of questions is it feels really grand to me, a philosophy. I boiled it down to kind of what's important to me and, and that I can answer. And it's being, it's being real and being human. And, and I think that is, you know, the breakthrough I made from where I've come from to where I am now. And I tried for many years to assimilate into what I thought a chief executive should look like and should act like and should be like. And actually that didn't work for me. So being real, being myself, being human, relationships are fundamental. So the relationships and the interactions I have every day with my team, with my leadership team, with my board, with any stakeholder, you know, any anybody that is you know, has an interest in the charity, the, those relationships are, are fundamental. And, and I guess in terms of the culture that I want to foster, that for me is one of belonging. So I want the people in the charity or involved in the charity to feel a sense of pride, a sense of belonging, a sense of connection. And and also, you know, my relationship you know, with you and the work that we've done with you around compassionate leadership, a sense of autonomy is really important across the team. So, you know, essentially for leadership philosophy comes down to relationships and, and I'm very mindful of the shadow of the leader. So, you know, my style, you know, where I set my priorities, the signals I give as a, uh, as a leader have to be purposeful and sensitive and for me to make sense of a lot of the complexity around the environment that we operate in, you know, in the... Uh, especially post-COVID, my leadership has to hold a lot of uncertainty to make sure that the team aren't overawed by that. Is that a philosophy, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very nice segue into our next question because I was going to ask, since assuming the chief exec exec role, you have steered the charity through COVID, Mm. the economic crisis and challenging times in the NHS. Mm. How has the intensity of those external events impacted on your role? For me, there was something really, really important, or there's some, there is something really important about a crisis in that it cuts through the noise. And, and COVID was, 
the ultimate, you know, of, of crises, if you will. But for me, it crystallised such a lot, uh, and particularly what matters. So it made me realise that actually my moral compass and my values are absolutely essential to the decisions that I make. So when in everyday life there's lots that's that's in front of us and lots of things that we need to consider, but actually when you're facing such uncertainty and such an important sort of situation as, as COVID, all of that noise faded away to the really important matters. And I needed to be able to rely on those values it taught me such a lot. <laughs> so the intensity of it, what what I would say is that looking at, at, at situations like that as a marathon and not a sprint, that's one of the main things that I've learned. It also gave me confidence in my leadership style in, in because of the values and, and the priorities that I had. It made me even more, I guess, confident and bolder in those in those decisions that I was making. So for the charity, you know, COVID reduced our income by 40%. You know, the economic crisis, live, cost of living crisis that we're in now uh, means that each pound that is given to the charity, well, there are fewer of them, but also we don't get as much for our pound any longer. So there are still challenges that are faced by the charity not least, you know, supporting our NHS colleagues and the the challenges that the workforce has, the NHS workforce has at the moment. However, I see good people around me. I see a lot of compassion. So no matter how much there are challenges in the voluntary sector, no matter how much there are challenges in the NHS, my leadership needs to amplify the good it needs to amplify where there is compassion. It needs to amplify the good that people are doing um, and for me to help make sense of where there are challenges and there are there is complexity and provide a bit of space, actually, for people to work through those difficulties and also a healthy dose of optimism, you know. So I think some people can see optimism as some, as a bit naive, you know, there's all of these challenges in front of us, but just because you put on a cheery voice, <laughs> that suddenly it's, that's not going to make it all better, which is true. But actually, if you think about things like appreciative inquiry and, and the sort of the concept of that, if we look at what we're doing well and we see how, how can we replicate that, how can we do more of those things, that, I think, is, a, is an important part of what a good leadership can bring to the table. As the chief executive of a charity, you have more stakeholders than most organisations. In particular, you have your trustees to work with. How do you go about brokering a productive working relationship with your trustees? So the biggest learning point for me as a new chief executive was realising that the board wasn't simply a body of people that I needed to report to, but rather they're a group of peers. And I have, I'm very lucky, a group of incredibly experienced people around my board table. And they want to help, <laughs> you know, they want, they, they're volunteers, essentially. They're giving their time, their expertise for free 
because they believe in the good of the charity, of, of what it's there to do. So it's up to me to make the most of that. And as soon as I started seeing the board and my relationship with the board through that lens, the better it got, you know, the relationships formed better. I asked for help more and and it's up to me to let them help. It's up to me to ask questions. It's up to me to encourage constructive challenge. And, and what I would say is that the relationship with my chair is vital. And every two weeks, we go to a local cafe. He has a particular sandwich. I have a particular one. We both have the same things every two weeks. And we get through a huge amount in probably about 45, 50 minutes. And I go away feeling lifted, supported, listened to. And that is hugely important, you know, vital to the success of the charity. But but equally, I believe that that's what my chair signed up to as well. That, that's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to give. So that for me, in terms of my lens and my you know, the relationship I have with the board is is kind of how I approach it. But there's there's some other aspects that I think are important as well. And one of them is it's not just me and the board, it's the whole organisation and the board. So it's up to me to make sure that the board of trustees isn't some kind of, you know, mythical beast, that, that actually they're real people and that the team have access to those real people and that there are relationships that can be built between the leadership team and the wider charity team. So we have team meetings, we do training together, we have away days, we have walks in the park where our trustees join us, you know, and I want someone who's in a new junior position in the charity to feel like the board is just as accessible to them as it is to me. And and I guess the other aspect I would say and the advice that I would give is to put in time and energy into the relationships, but also to the succession planning. So just like you would with any key person within an organisation, that succession planning is just as important on the board as well. You've done some work recently with uh, Sarah Markham of Calm in a Box. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I really enjoyed this. So I remember my first conversation with Sarah and, and she was describing the work that she'd done and the, the sort of the philosophy that she'd come up with when she was developing the Calm programme. And the what I described to her was that charity was coming out of COVID. We had all worked at home you know in our back bedrooms or dining room tables or whatever it may be for a very long time but we were just about to go into a winter and I I kind of knew and, and had the sense that that was going to be a long hard winter for lots of reasons for lots of different people in the team so you know we'd been hybrid working for a long time we you know we'd lost connection in lots of ways the impact of COVID on people's well-being was noticeable. People had lived with uncertainty for such a long time. People had lost their usual routines and rituals and just lost normality. So Sarah and I kind of almost came up with a bit of a visualisation, which was the Calm programme would take the team through winter until the daffodils came up and that's exactly what we did so the calm sessions we had four of them and the calm model breaks down into 
the C is for connect with me, and that is all about relationships. The A is all of me matters, and that is very much around self, uh, understanding oneself, understanding others in your team. The L is let me rest, so starting to understand energy, energy management. And then the M goes into sort of a, a motivational kind of next steps piece of work. And that's very much individual-led. So what motivates me as an individual? How do I create more of that? And what is the action that I need to take next to, to create more of that in my day-to-day, live day-to-day work? I was really impressed by all the thinking that had gone into the development of that programme. And we did a survey, right, at, or a survey was done by Sarah right at the start, anonymous survey. And what really struck me was... We scored really highly on lots of areas, um, you know, about people's sort of uh, how much they love the charity, that they would recommend working at the charity to, you know, other people, all that kind of stuff. But where we didn't score particularly well was around being able to take a break and a rest. And for people who work in the voluntary sector, that can often be associated with guilt because actually I'm here to make a difference and therefore I should always be making a difference Um, and if I take a break from making a difference then I'm letting people down, myself, my team, our donors, the people who were there to support. So we worked hard in the charity to normalise rest and taking a break. I'm not saying we're perfect at it, I'm far from perfect at it but we at least continue to have those conversations with each other about what that means and how we deal with the the potential guilt that we feel around that. What do you consider your greatest work-related achievement to date? Well, I asked my husband this. (laughs) Well, one, I was wondering whether it was a bit of a memory test (laughs) of whether he's been listening over the years, but he reeled off a few things, and I was like, oh, no, that doesn't feel quite right, and yeah, that we are proud of that, but when I really boiled it down, the main thing that comes to mind is navigating through COVID, so... It's not necessarily a single achievement, but there's a huge amount I learned about myself during that time. And I'm pleased to say that the charity has come out of the other side of that in relatively good shape. The things that I definitely learned was what really mattered to me, you know, my values, what I cared about and the decisions that I made flowed from there. But it also reminded me that I needed to look at the world through the lens of the people who were most impacted and who were most marginalised. And actually that takes me right back to my early career where often, you know, disabled children are the ones that are most marginalised and, you know, impacted by, by society essentially. So through COVID, the people we were there to support, people living with cancer, there were people who were newly diagnosed through that period who were living with fear of going to hospital when hospitals were dealing with people with COVID. People who were in hospitals, you know, poorly in hospital with cancer, who could have no visitors and who were seeing clinical staff in full PPE. People who were living with cancer and at home and we didn't have a vaccine. And these were people who, if they caught COVID 
well, it would have been life and death for those people and for people who had a terminal diagnosis and they were at home being asked not to see their families and they had a time limit on their, their lives. They had their time was running out and they weren't with their loved ones. So for me, all of those things meant that the decisions that we took in the charity and the things that we needed to do and the support that we needed to provide, we needed to see it all through the lens, those lenses. So COVID reconfirmed to me what was important, my values and essentially what my leadership is all about. And I am, yeah, I am, I'm proud of that period, not necessarily for me, but for the whole team and what we were able to do and the difference we were able to make. And would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake? Oh, I make them all the time. <laughs> There's loads of them, Chris, loads of them. That's that's just it, isn't it? Every day, there's something that, that I get wrong every day. Something I think, oh, gosh, Emma, what did you do that for? Or I'd have my time over again with, with that. But I guess the big thing for me is not to dwell on it. Mistakes happen. They're part of everyday life. And actually, I need to make that all right for me and all right for the people who you know work alongside me. I think the thing that held me back for a lot of years was uh, imposter syndrome, and I let that hold me back. But I've worked hard to challenge those limiting beliefs. So, you know, do I wish I'd done that earlier? Yes, of course I do. But you live and learn, don't you? But now I've, I, you know, like on this podcast, I talk really openly about some of those limiting beliefs. And what I hope that does is that paves the way for other people to feel safe about their own limiting beliefs and how imposter syndrome affects them. So now some questions that I ask all the guests who come on my podcast. Who is the person or the experience which has changed you or inspired you most? So I've thought about this one more from the experience perspective and and actually it's quite a personal one, but I want to describe it and then talk about how that links to being a compassionate leader. And that is that one of the biggest experiences in my personal life is that me and my husband were unable to have children and we went through a number of years of tests and failed IVF and and we did all of that in private and it took a lot of courage to move beyond that privacy and for me to find my voice on the on this whole topic but what I've realized is how important it is for that it shaped who I am but also it's important in terms of my leadership as well. I'm a female, I'm a chief executive, I have no children. What I don't want to portray is that being a chief executive, female chief executive, equals no children. I think it's important for that to be vocalised so that that isn't an assumption that other women particularly um, have to make or do make. So demystifying that and being honest about it, because that assumption can then lead to quite a destructive message for other women who are progressing in their career and potentially aspiring to be in a leadership position or or as a, a chief executive. So inspiration wise, I have found the work of Jodie Day, 
she wrote a book called Living the Life Unexpected, and, and that's essentially what myself and my husband have, have had to do. But the work that she has done on this topic has helped me sort of formulate my own views and my own voice and being able to process that experience and come out of the other side of it in a with what I hope is a is a constructive, helpful uh, message to others. What does your self-care regime look like? Well, <laughs> I used to walk my dog quite a lot, but he's 12 years old now. He's a bit stinky. He's very slow, virtually blind, virtually deaf. So let's say our dog walks are a lot slower. But I do, uh, I practice yoga. I'm a big hot yoga fan. I was there last night, actually. Um, so these creaky bones and hips <laughs> are trying to remain as flexible as possible. I enjoy podcasts. So, yeah, a podcast out on a walk or in the bath or whatever and really kind of enjoy. I think what, what that is, actually, is I enjoy learning. And more recently, I've took up a gardening course because I'd really like to be able to garden a lot better than I do, which is generally just putting something in the ground and hoping for the best. And I think it's probably a, a midlife thing, but I've joined the National Trust, Chris. <laughs> and I went to one of the National Trust properties earlier this year uh, to Sutton Hoo in Suffolk. And I listened to one of their volunteers speak about the archaeological dig there. Oh, and I was fascinated. So I think self-care to me is learning and putting my brain into use in a different way to work and that's what allows it to sort of not be thinking about the emails or the to-do list and actually think about something that is different and distracting. Mm, interesting. I don't think I've had a guest who's mentioned the National <laughs> Trust as part of their self-care <laughs> regime before, but there you are. Apart from becoming a decent gardener, is there something you'd still like to achieve in work or, or leisure? Oh, well, it's gardening, I'm afraid. You're not getting anything <laughs> different from me. Uh, I, I planted a fig tree last year. I've got my peonies growing. I've got a banana tree in the garden. I worked on the dead hedge last year, Chris, the dead hedge. And this year it is planting uh, a section of the garden and giving that over to wildflowers. So it's definitely middle-aged setting in, isn't it? What is the book, podcast or video that you'd recommend to aspiring readers? So the one that I think has had the most impact on me is a book, uh, Susan Scott's Fierce Conversations. So, you know, if I go back right to the beginning of this podcast and I said that relationships underpin everything, well, actually, you know, being real, being human, having good relationships require us to have real and honest and sometimes fierce conversations. So I love the philosophy of one conversation at a time. And and sometimes, you know, as I say, conversations can be challenging, but often those are the ones that are most necessary. And I found this book really insightful into why it's important to make the most of each conversation. Yeah, I've read Susan Scott and I remember that one of her most memorable quotes is the conversation is the relationship. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, and finally, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? It's quite simple. It's be yourself and, Emma, it's all going to be okay. Thanks, Emma, for such an insightful interview and insight into 
the world of the chief exec of Western Park Cancer Charity. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at damflask-consulting.com. This episode was recorded at Big Dog Studios Sheffield and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. <laughs>